Hey everybody, welcome back to Bikes and Big Ideas on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm David Golay, the bike editor at Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Okay, so my guest this week on the show is Matthew Fairbrother, and for those of you who aren't familiar, well, you're in for a ride on this one, because Matthew showed up to race the first EWS of the season at age 17 in Scotland, having never left New Zealand before, and without actually having a plan for how he was going to get to the next race after that. And long story short, he ended up bikepacking his way through the entire EWS season, and the story is somehow much crazier than that description even makes it sound. This is a super fun one, and not only is Matthew's story wild, but he also just tells it with a pretty incredible sense of humor and a remarkable approach to the whole thing, especially for someone who is as young as he is. And we're pretty excited both to share this conversation and to see what's next from him, because this is a seriously impressive guy, and I think you're really going to enjoy it. But real quick, before we get into the show, I just wanted to take a quick moment and say, if you're new to the show, welcome. Thanks for joining. If you've been listening to these for a while, I hope that means you're enjoying them. And I would like to encourage you to take a quick minute to leave us a rating or review of the show in Apple Podcasts. Doing that really helps get the word out about the show and helps us keep doing what we're doing here, keep growing the show, and just keep bringing you these episodes that you are clearly enjoying if you're a repeat listener. So it'll only take a minute. Please do that. It really helps us out. And with that, let's get right to my conversation with Matthew. Well, Matthew, appreciate you taking the time to chat here. How are you doing today and where are you right now? Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm good. Thanks. Thanks for giving me the opportunity to, to be on here. Um, I'm in Nice at the moment, so just left a few days after spending about a week in Finale in Italy. Nice. Well, yeah, you've had, uh, as we'll get into here, quite the tour of a whole lot of different places. So before we dive in, though, just for folks who might not be as familiar, you have just wrapped up a pretty remarkable tour of the EWS circuit and have been bikepacking your way through as much of it as you could and did bike back pretty damn near the whole thing. So I guess just to start it off, where did this idea to go for the whole thing start and kind of what did you originally have in mind when you kicked the whole program off? Because uh, as we'll get into it, evolved a little bit as you went. But what made you think that this was a good idea and that you could actually do it? Uh, so, so basically, um I guess this is back in New Zealand. Uh, I just had the idea that I wanted to do the EWS season this year. And I'm quite a stubborn person. So, um, yeah, I just basically made it happen, booked flights and all that. And I didn't have a plan at all. Um, I just thought I'd figure that out once I got here. Um, I'm just by myself. I don't know anyone here. And I mean, I'm not old enough to, to get a car here or... I don't. I don't even have much money, either, so I wouldn't be able to afford one. So I thought I'd just just make it work as I went. Uh, so about a week before the first EWS in Scotland at Tweed Valley, I ended up bumping into Win Masters, who's a who's also a New Zealander. Um, we don't. Well, yeah, we hadn't met before, so we ended up chatting, and I kind of told him that I didn't have a way of getting to all the EWSs, and 
he kind of mentioned to to bike to them. So I don't know what I was signing myself up to, but I said, yes, I would. So yeah, that was that. And I had about a week to get all my, all my things organized and, and set off. <laughs> I mean, I love that. So I saw somewhere you said that you'd only committed to riding just for the first European leg. Was it Monday the week before that first race in Tweed Valley? And so you just kind of got yourself to Scotland as a starting point and figured it out from there. And what figuring it out looked like ended up being bikepacking it. And uh, so as you alluded to also, you were, if I have it right, 17 when you started this at least and had your 18th birthday kind of midway through. Yeah. Am I also right that you had not left New Zealand before heading over to Scotland for that first race, first time out of the country? Yeah, it was it was my first time out and first time I guess going anywhere by myself. And yeah, being seventeen, I can't even like book a hotel by myself. So it was quite a bold, bold move, I guess. Um, but yeah, just just jumped into it head first. I love it. And so, what did your parents and friends and stuff back home think about this idea to just kind of head over to Europe and figure it out and then I guess subsequently to that too what was their reaction when you were over there and like well okay I figured this out I'm just gonna ride my bike everywhere between all the events what sort of how did that sound to everyone and kind of what were the responses you got when you first started kicking this whole thing off well, yeah, I don't think my mum and well, now to begin with, my mum and dad were, I think, quite quite happy that I was kind of, I guess, making a big step in my life and going to explore the world. Um, but I think that maybe took a turn when I told them what I was planning on doing because I think they thought I was a lot more organised and you know I knew what I was doing. I had ways of getting places which I didn't, so they weren't that happy. But I kind of explained it to them and. I think they, well, I guess the only option they had was to let me do it because they couldn't stop me. <laughs> but yeah, I think I made them feel a bit better about the whole thing. And yeah, I was off. So Right. Okay. So to get into the mechanics of this a little bit, I mean, had you done much bikepacking prior to this? And since it came together so last minute, what was it like rounding up the gear that you needed to do it? And how did thoroughly did you kind of have a plan for how you were going to handle all of the gear that you needed versus just kind of winging it with what you could round up or how did that all go yeah so this is my first time bike packing either uh, i've never been on like a a multi-day kind of mission so yeah yeah i went into the deep end <laughs> um but well yeah that, that also meant i had nothing at all that i needed for bike packing but quite quite luckily, I was spending the week with Ben, who's uh, one of the owners of Deviate Cycles. So he was quite handy at kind of helping me organize what I needed and all that. And the Sunday afternoon of the EWS, the day I was leaving, like an hour before I was leaving, he turned up with with all the bike bags and all the kit I needed to to set off. So I, I was quite lucky that I had his his support. So, okay, so he rounded up a bunch of bags for you, and what other gear were you carrying as far as camping equipment and all that kind of stuff goes? What did you wind up with? Yeah, so I had a sleeping bag, sleeping mat, uh, like a, a stove set, 
I had a solar-powered power bank, um, a bunch of bike spears, um, and just some, some clothes. That was about it, I think. Not much more. And then food and water. And so then you just kind of set off. And at this stage, how much had you sort of planned out, uh, like, where exactly you were going to try to get each day and what that entailed as far as the lengths of the days that you were going to have to do? And how confident were you that you could actually make it all work? Because as we'll get into here, it involved you having to do a lot of very, very big days back to back to back in a number of instances between races. And so I guess, yeah, just how did planning all that out work given you didn't have this experience bikepacking really and doing it well, carrying as much stuff as you would need to is kind of a whole different beast than just doing the mileage out on a normal ride. And so what did that planning look like and what gave you the confidence that you could do it or how confident were you that you could do it? Yeah. Yeah. So once again, I'm, I'm super new to this whole kind of thing and I've never been over here. So I have no idea how anything works, but luckily Windmasters has suggested I use Kamut, which is like a Google Maps, but made for bikes. So I use that and I'm just committed to that with all my heart and didn't bother to look at it closely or, or change anything. So I, yeah, I use that and that ended up, yeah, that was super good. Um, no, no major mistakes, but it just gets a bit, a bit messy once you get into cities and, and that kind of thing. Uh, just, I guess finds you the quickest way, but it's, yeah, it's not always the best way, I think. Okay. Uh, but then, so give us, give a sense of kind of how big the days that you were having to do were to link everything together. Because like I said, you left Scotland after the first race in Tweed Valley. You're now at this point headed off to central Europe. What did it take to get there in time? Um, so basically I had two weeks to get to the next EWS. Um, but in between that, I'd also kind of been challenged to make it to, it was Leo gang in Switzerland before the weekend to, to watch the world cup. So within the big challenge, I had a, a sub challenge to, to meet. Um, and I love a good challenge. So I was, yeah, I'd make it to Switzerland or well, Leo gang in Switzerland. Um, yeah, that was that. So. This is ages ago, so I've kind of forgot. But I think most days I was doing about two fifty kilometers, um, for I think six days. Yeah, that's that's a lot. And how heavy was the bike setup that you were doing this on, with all your gear and all the rest? You were kitted out. Yeah, my bike was my bike was about thirty to thirty-five kg with all the gear, and that kind of just also depended on how much food I have on the bike and how much water. Sure. I mean, yeah, some, a little bit of variability there, but um, again, heavy. And so how did you go about bike setup and your gear arrangement and all the rest? If I have it right, you were really making a point of not carrying anything on your back. So you had everything on the bike and then what were you doing for tires and all that kind of stuff? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. As you say, I'm a big fan of keeping stuff off your back because I think when you're doing like, I don't know, 18 hour days, it's just, you just can't do it. It's, it's going to end up hurting your shoulders and being uncomfortable and also it'll make you sweat heaps. So yeah, all my gear on the bike, um, 
I was also using the exact same bike I was using for the EWSs. Uh, the only thing I changed was the tires. So I just had some standard kind of slip tires, um, nothing special. I just managed to find them um, in Tweed Valley off one of the sponsor's tents. <laughs> I told them what I was doing and they were happy to hand them over. I had Eric Olson on the show a little while back and talked about his bike backing across the first bunch of European stops. And uh, that was one of the things that he brought up as being something of a mistake that he sort of, as he put it, committed to as a bit of he had a whole second wheel set with his race tires. And he was rather than swapping tires out, he was just carrying a second wheel set on his back, which he said was absolutely not the right way to do it ended up throwing his back out and all the rest so yeah does sound like you had the right approach there but having not done any bike packing before how did you kind of figure all this out and what did the learning curve look like were you changing your approach as you went based on what you were figuring out as you went or did you kind of get some decent advice and happen to have it all pretty well sorted out from the jump um I don't know. I think I kind of all worked it out by myself in a way. Like at home when I'm biking, I'm a big fan of not having anything in my pockets or on my back. So I think even before this, all my stuff has always just been on my bike, like my spares and all that. Uh, so I, I think that's kind of how I came up with that idea and made sure I didn't have a backpack. Sure. And what kind of experience did you have doing super huge mileage like this? We've obviously talked on you not really haven't done much bikepacking specifically before, but as far as just sequential big days in the rest, what kind of riding experience do you have with that? Yes. I think once a year, I like to challenge myself and see what I'm, I can do basically. So I've done a couple like 10,000 meter vertical challenges in like one day. So like on a mountain bike doing actual mountain biking. So that's, that's kind of been my thing. I can I can do big single days, but before this, I'd never done two consecutive days on a bike that big. And so how did it go? What were those first few days of really getting into it and putting together a bunch in a row like? Because as you said, you had to really hustle from Scotland to get to Switzerland for the, the World Cup there. So... Uh, even if it was just a spectate. So, yeah, how did it go? What was the early get going like? Um, well, I think at the beginning, there's quite a bit of hype and excitement about it. So, yeah, I, don't know. I didn't find it that bad, but I think the weather started to set in a little bit in Germany. Um, yeah, some, some big storms. And I think when I got wet, that just wasn't a good time because you know, all your stuff is wet and it's just, yeah, you're not having fun. So I think there were some big, some big low points there, uh, but I mean, the only option is just to keep moving. You're not doing yourself any favors if you, if you stop and just sit down. Yeah. I mean, any particular memorable stories from that first leg, uh, you know, you mentioned just getting soaked and having to kind of power through that, but were there any other notable mishaps or things that went well or anything that stands out uh, oh i think one thing happened which people seem to seem to find quite funny uh, i think i think i was maybe 24 hours into biking one day or something i did i did quite a big day 
think I started in the New Netherlands and made it to something in Germany. I forgot the names now. It's quite a while ago, but I got to the point where I was quite tired and I was starting to hallucinate. Um, and when I kind of hallucinate on the bike, I see these kind of animals jogging along beside me and they're like, all all nice animals, like fluffy and soft and nothing, nothing bad, but that was happening. Um, and it's fine. I've been in that kind of state before, but then I get hit in the face by a bird, um, <laughs> out of nowhere, but I'm, I'm hallucinating. I'm quite aware of the fact that I'm hallucinating. So it's like, I just, I just pass it off. It's, it didn't happen. Like it was a hallucination in my head. But then the next, I, that night I ended up sleeping in like a, a farmer's kind of shack where they're selling their, I don't know, potatoes and all that. It's just like an honesty kind of box system. So I, I sleep in there that night and I wake up, I'm kind of looking at my plans for the day and I was looking at my photos and then there's this face of, there's this photo of my face covered in blood. And yeah, then I, I look at myself again and I'm just covered in blood. Like this bird hit me so, so good in the face. And so you'd taken a selfie in the moment, but had kind of written it off mentally as having not really happened and then woke up the next morning with this visual confirmation of it and we're second guessing that? Yeah, I was I was quite in a state when it happened, I guess. And I just, I don't know. I just wasn't, wasn't there and... In the morning, I, I guess I got that confirmation that it did happen. <laughs> yeah, I was quite tired. <laughs> that sounds like an entirely different level of tired to, to experience that and write it off as an hallucination. So, uh, yeah, I guess that gives a little bit of an insight into what an effort this was. And one of the things that I thought was really interesting in chatting with Eric about his tour to EWS, his version of it, was that... He mentioned that one of his goals for it was to actually kind of demonstrate that this didn't necessarily need to be super hard and make the point that our even our big enduro mountain bikes are totally viable as a means of transportation. And so as part of that, he took trains a bunch of places and didn't bike the full mileage in the same way that you did. Um so just a bit of a different approach, different goals for it, I suppose. And what I'm getting out of yours is that in your case, it was just much more a utilitarian decision of going, well, need to get there somehow. Got a bike, don't have a lot of money. Biking there's free, going to go for it. But uh, I mean, what was it like kind of one, I guess, just grinding out mileage for that many days in a row under pretty tight time constraints and just needing to keep yourself motivated to keep turning the pedals because you kind of knew you had this time frame you had to hit there on and what was it like motivating yourself to keep going and how hard was that mental side of it yeah i mean i think that the whole thing's a big mental side like i mean like yeah the whole thing's mental i think the whole sport of mountain biking is all mental um and i'm a i'm a big believer of like whatever you set your mind to you can do um and like i think your mind is the only limiting factor so like something i do when i when i do these challenges is i don't set a plan b 
So I've only got plan A, um, and that means I've got to achieve that plan A because I've got no plan B. Like, there's no way to make it easier. I've just got to get there, and I've got no other option. So, yeah, that's what I do. And, I mean, I, I do make a, a failure plan. So if I don't make it, I've got I've got ways of helping myself, but that's like if I fail. So um, for me, I just... Since I've got no plan B, I just I just can't stop. I've got to make it there, and that's my only option. Right. So just not thinking about there being any other thing that you could do other than just doing the thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense to an extent at least, but were there any particular moments where you started to second-guess it or – did it kind of work for you just to keep that mindset and were there yeah, particular moments of self-doubt or did it sort of continue to feel doable or maybe even was it that you were just so in the thick of it that you kind of didn't really have the perspective to be like having this bigger picture view of what you were doing and think it through all that closely. I don't know. Curious to hear what that felt like. I think I, I was convincing myself that if I'd stopped, I would have put myself in a worse situation. Um, because I guess I'm totally by myself. And to get help off anyone would have been quite a hassle for them. And I'm kind of someone who doesn't like to get help off anyone. I don't like making other people kind of work for me. Um, yeah, so I think I decided it would just be easier for me to keep going. For like for myself and anyone who may have had helped me. That makes sense. And it, at some level, yeah, like you said, if you are, you have this plan and if sticking or failing to stick to the plan, that is just means that you have to improvise and figure something new out, then that's maybe harder. Slow so, work. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Just be like, well, even if this is kind of rough right now, not sticking with it's going to be worse. So here we are. Yeah. And so love to hear a bit about just kind of some more of the logistical stuff. Like where were you sleeping? How much were you managing to sleep? And also what were you eating for this whole deal? Yeah. Um, so I was sleeping just in, in the tent, just wherever I could find. Um, so just in the woods, basically. Um, which for me was like, I was, I was scared because being in New Zealand, there's like no animals that would hurt you. So each night I was kind of like Googling like what animals there were and just seeing what I, what I needed to be aware of. So it was quite a big thing for me. And um, yeah, it was definitely on my mind of like of what is out there. Um, so maybe, maybe most nights I was sleeping about five to six hours. And a couple nights, maybe four hours. Okay, so not really sleeping a ton, but not the worst situation that it could be, I suppose. But yeah, what about food? Obviously, you were burning just an outrageous number of calories doing all of this. How are you fueling it? Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I was solo. And also with my bike, which is, is worth quite a bit. And it's also got my whole life on it. It's... I mean, I had all my passport money and all that in it. So um, basically having that stolen just wasn't an option. So I was only going to gas stations kind of 
in the middle of nowhere um that there was no one walking by and that it just wouldn't make sense to steal someone's bike so basically food was just like um candy uh potato chips um and just water fizzy and juice <laughs> for liquids but i think lots of people are quite disgusted by that but i think when you're doing huge days like that um that's the main fuel you need to have because it's energy dense because if you're having i don't know just standard kind of food it's going to take way too much stomach way too much space in your stomach for the amount of energy you get out of it so you've got to be quite smart with your eating yeah i get that and i mean not that i have done big days on quite this magnitude before but uh I similarly sort of struggle to get myself to eat enough when I'm doing a really big day on the bike. And I think it's kind of, like you said, a combination of just not having room in your stomach for a ton, but also just when you're exercising hard, just at least for me, I find that I don't tend to be super hungry i think something about the exertion just kind of suppresses some of the the need there and so um yeah i get just wanting to shovel a bunch of sugar down and have something that like you said is energy dense and straightforward so um i mean on one hand it makes sense on the other hand it does sound kind of rough in some ways were you finding yourself like missing quote-unquote real food or was it sort of like you were just so deeply in the thick of this thing that those sorts of considerations weren't really on your mind either um yeah i think I was, when i'm when i'm in it i'm quite deeply in it and i i wasn't thinking too much about other stuff like i kind of i'm not much of a food guy i'm a big i guess like yeah lots of my thoughts on food are it's it's fuel so um when i eat most of the time i'm thinking of it as a fuel way uh so i guess yeah when i go to a shop i'm just looking for the thing that has the most energy in it fair enough um especially given this whole undertaking and just got to make it work so okay so we've been talking through you've been you've left scotland you made it to Switzerland for that World Cup. And then do I have it right that your original plan was to do the first three European races? So Scotland, Slovenia, and Italy, and then kind of bide your time in Europe for a bit before the series returned for Grand Montana and Switzerland and skip the North American events. I guess, first off, having then gotten to Slovenia, what was it like showing up having just put this enormous effort in to get there in the first place and then have to go race on tired legs? And how much of a window were you able to give yourself to recover when you were showing up at these races? Or was it kind of like you had just such tight time frames to get there at all that you really didn't have much recovery time between showing up and starting practice or even just diving straight into the race yeah so um i ended up giving it a tuesday i think it was so basically i had a few days of i guess chilling out 
until I was into the, the EWS weekend. Um, but I think I know my body well enough that if I stopped doing anything, um, I'd just shut down and I'd be worse off. So in those days I was meant to have off, um, I ended up just doing a few laps of, of the hill on what wasn't shut. Uh, yeah, of what wasn't shut on the hill. So I think each day I did about a thousand meters of climbing, um, <laughs> just to keep the legs ticking over. Sure. So yeah, I mean, bit of a ride, but nothing, nothing huge by any stretch. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So that was something that Eric touched on too. Was that when he was doing this version of his tour, he said that he kind of didn't do a lot of track walk or practice sort of feeling like he didn't have quite the energy. And I think it was sort of the combination of physical energy and mental energy, mental bandwidth to put a lot into that. And his approach was to say, well, I'm going to let it slide and just focus on going into the actual race as fresh and focused and ready to go hard at that as he could how did you go about that aspect of things were you really trying to take track walk seriously and that kind of stuff or just or is it more of a eric style winging it approach um yeah i guess i, I just winged it um i don't think i've walked i think i've only walked two stages all year so i was just just into it and i guess yeah exactly as as you just said, um, there's so much like mental fatigue and mental tiredness that you've got to be so careful where you put that energy because, yeah, there's, there's not much of it. Right. Yeah, I, I definitely get that. Uh, do you think that that approach of not doing track walk can kind of, for the most part at least, and really just focusing on race day is something that you would do differently if you were taking a more conventional approach and uh, not doing the bike packing between stages or is that something that kind of naturally fits your demeanor and approach to things generally speaking anyway what are your i mean maybe this is hard to answer having you know not done an ews season in the quote-unquote conventional way but um any thoughts there um yeah yeah i think i'd, I'd definitely walk walk the stages because I mean, it's all marginal gains, isn't it? But I think a big part of it is the confidence of knowing where you're going. Um, and confidence is is kind of key in these events. So I think it, it definitely does help. And I think the two times I did walk some of the stages, um, yeah, I did quite well. So Yeah, I mean, that definitely makes sense that having some familiarity and being better prepared and having better confidence also would certainly help. And I guess along those lines, I'm curious to hear what you think about how much doing this bike packing between stages influenced your overall race results. Obviously, not being able to do track walk doesn't help. Being tired probably doesn't help. How big a deal do you feel like that was? Or was it actually kind of like marginal stuff around the edges, but it maybe wasn't as detrimental as it certainly sounds like it probably would be um yeah i think the whole thing's huge like the second ews in slovenia um i was tired but i think i had quite a bit of hype and excitement behind it that kind of 
that kind of helped me help me finish that weekend and I, I finished it quite well um but then the next weekend in Canada um I was totally gone mentally and physically and I just started falling off all the time and I think that just comes down to fatigue um, mostly mental fatigue just like I think my mind goes a bit foggy when I'm that tired yeah I I believe it um that part of it definitely doesn't sound easy and so as we said had kind of originally planned to bide your time in Europe and wait for the series to come back for Switzerland Grands Montana in September but uh you wound up making your way over to North America and racing there as well and that turnaround between Italy and Whistler was a pretty short one so how did this all come about and what did it look like getting yourself over to Canada at fairly short notice and how'd the plan evolve from there yeah so um I guess in the midst of all this there was quite a bit of publicity on my own account and pink bike and in the end deviate cycles who who helped me out a bit each year they set up a, a gofundme page and also said they'd pay for my flights to to canada so that's kind of how it all started and i ended up getting quite a bit of money put into that gofundme by the whole community so that was that was amazing <laughs> so yeah within like i think it was like maybe two weeks before the whistler ews um I found out it was it was going to happen, um, and then then I was off. <laughs> it's like that. Would imagine that it was pretty exciting to have this opportunity to go race the rest of the series and go to Whistler yeah. and all the rest. Was there any part of you that was almost like, "Oh shit, now I have to go do more of this," or was it just full bore stoke that you were you were making your way over there? I mean, yeah, like super stoked that I was getting in there, but. At the same same time, like I felt like I was somewhat committed to, to kind of finishing the season the way I'd started it, because I, I think so many people were stoked on it, and the amount of mess- uh, yeah, the amount of messages I got was just mind blowing. The amount of support I got was mind blowing as well. So I felt felt like I'd yeah I'd been committed to doing the the whole season like that. Um, which I mean, it takes quite a quite a big hit mentally to sign yourself back up to doing that. But, I mean, yeah, bikes are fun, aren't they? So I was stoked either way. Bikes are fun. And I guess something we haven't touched on in the midst of this that I'm curious to hear some about is what were the reactions of the other racers like to your whole program? I mean, you've already mentioned the Masters Brothers kind of chatting with you and helping out in their own ways. But what were folks thinking when you kind of rocked up in the pits and told them what you were doing that is and how did people respond to that uh, yeah i think it kind of went two ways so i think not many people knew until i got to slovenia the second ews and then they're just like all, all mind blown but i think once they kind of found out i was continuing to do it some people are like i'm just i'm stupid um because i've like made my point and now I should just be focusing on going as quick as I possibly can. Um, and that was quite, that was quite hard to, to take because yes, like some of my, some of the people I looked up to, I guess, were saying that. And yeah, that definitely took a big toll. But then other people were just so stoked on it and just couldn't believe that I was making it happen while still 
still going fairly quick. So there's two sides sides to it, I guess. So to bring it back to Canada, I saw you mentioned somewhere that you ended up kind of doing too much riding in the bike park and just got too fired up about being in Whistler and uh, maybe wore yourself out a little bit before race day. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, like, I think Whistler, as, as a mountain biker, Whistler's the place you, you hear about and know about. So I just, the, the hype got to me. I just spent the whole week doing laps at the park, like 8 a.m. to to 8 p.m. I think it was or, or something like that. But yeah, opening time to closing time. I was at the bike park. And so uh, kind of, yeah, how were you feeling going into the race then? How fresh were you and what were you feeling like? Because it was what, two weeks between Italy and Whistler and obviously you'd flown there. You hadn't done a major bike packing uh, tour in between quite the same way. Though, I'm actually not sure of the logistics of this bit. Did you fly into Vancouver and ride your way up to Whistler, or how did you do that leg? Um, I ended up getting picked up at Whistler because I didn't have a bike yet. Um, DV8 Cycles came out with a new bike for the Claymore, so they wanted to get me on that um, for Whistler, but that hadn't turned up yet. So I was without a bike for, for like the first week when I got to Canada. Oh, right. Okay. So yeah, you had that little swap over there and then yeah, had a bit of, had a bit of forced time off the bike, which was yeah, quite good. I think. <laughs> yeah. I can imagine you could, yeah. have used, could have used that at that stage. Okay, cool. So then, yeah, you, well, I suppose on the flip side of that too, is that you got yourself very nicely familiarized with the new bike. So there's that. Um, and how'd Whistler go after the actual race that is after, all the bike park action and everything that you'd done up to that point. I mean, yeah, I was, I was quite, quite stoked to, to finally get into it. Um, and I mean, whistle is physical, um, but I think that, that suits me. I'm quite a like upper body physical kind of guy. Like I love to smash stuff. Um, so yeah, I got into it and I think the first two stages I got fifth place on. Um, but in the midst of that, I smashed my back wheel um, and split split it open. So I think I did four stages with no ear and my tire just on the cush core. That wouldn't help. How were you able to hold the wheel more or less together, or how'd that all go? Some classic zip tie engineering with that or something? Oh, oh yeah. Um, I got out the cable ties and, and um, duct tape and just... Yeah, did the best job I could to save that. And it ended up splitting in half completely um, after a couple stages, but it held together enough that I could finish the day. And I think the hardest thing was just making the liaisons and pedaling with flat tire. <laughs> but yeah, it held together, so I was stoked. Yeah, I can imagine doing the liaisons on the time frame that you have to with a flat rear would be tough and just an extra bit of effort that you really didn't need to be exerting at that point where you're having to push harder just to make the transfer times. And, uh, but well, you pulled it off, I suppose. So there's that. Yeah. Okay. So then now you're in Whistler. Next race is all the way across the continent in Burke, Vermont, with just a week between them. So obviously despite the 
frankly, superhuman efforts that you've put forth thus far, there wasn't any doing that one as a full pedal. So what was the plan from there? Yeah, yeah, as you say, that just isn't possible. Um, yeah, not by anyone. So uh, I pedaled. I had a flight. It was Monday evening. So I ended up staying in Whistler that night. And in the morning, I pedaled along the Cedar Sky Highway to Vancouver, where I picked up a bike box at Steed Cycles. And then with that bike box, pedaled 30 kilometers to the airport. <laughs> How did you go about carrying a bike box for 30 kilometers? Yeah, so I had two things. Um, I had some duct tape and a bike in a tube. So I basically turned the bike box into a backpack and just, yeah, bike with that to the airport. But it sucked because it was just like having a big wall on my back and it, it caught the wind so bad. <laughs> that sounds tough. Was that just the bike box that you could readily get your hands on and it was didn't find one nearer to the airport to facilitate that or was that how'd that come about um wow someone just told me to message steed cycles to see if they had a bike box so i thought it would have been close and i just kind of committed to that to start with and then it ended up not being that close (laughs) (laughs) i think that's my just broadly speaking kind of my favorite bit about this is just how kind of frankly impressive you're ability to just go wing stuff and sort of seemingly fairly cheerfully power through whatever comes out of it is. And uh, so that's just been an interesting through line here. Um, okay. So you get to the Vancouver airport, fly to, uh, was it Montreal, right? Because you were still going to do a bit of a bike pack on that end, just pare it down a little bit to uh, make the whole deal possible. So how things go from there? What was next? Yeah, so I had to pedal over to to Burke in Vermont. Um, so I think that was two seventy kilometers, maybe. Um, so I ended up splitting that into two days, and I slept on the Canada USA border. Um, that that night, um, which was quite exciting for me. Uh. In Whistler, I was talking to some people, and they said the East Coast like didn't have any animals or anything I needed to be scared of, so I thought I was sweet. And that night, I didn't like hide my food. Um, so I woke up to a moose, a bear, and lots of deer that night. Who, oh, and the bear ended up eating all my food, so that was quite exciting. And I didn't get any sleep that night just because of the pure fear of waking up to all these animals yeah uh that sounds like a pretty rough night i mean how much did they actually get into your food versus just kind of circling around the camp and keeping you up or how'd that all go oh uh, well yeah so i think first i woke up to a to a moose which i it didn't it kind of wasn't that close to me i could just hear the thing and then i got out They're my torch really and- big and whoever gave you that advice that there's nothing dangerous on the east coast was perhaps not giving you the the best advice there yeah they're huge aren't they <laughs> they're massive and can be pretty aggressive actually so uh I'm, I'm glad that worked out all right but i mean how close was it and what did it do when you started shining the flashlight at it it was maybe about 20 meters away and i just immediately turned off the flashlight and there was still a bit of moonlight out so i could i was just keeping an eye on it 
and it kind of it didn't didn't even look my way it just kind of kept moving moving the way it was moving okay that's probably for the best that it was not too interested in you but uh that's alarming okay and then uh as i recall you had a bit of an adventure getting across the border as well after going through your night with the moose yeah um <laughs> that yeah so i got to the usa border um I decided to go for like an outback kind of border um, just because I was on a bike and didn't want to be a pain. But I don't think they were that stoked to see me on a bike maybe. Like, I don't know. They were just just super weird the whole time. Um, And they ended up like pulling me into like the wee office cubicle thing and just started going at me with questions. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, it was quite, quite hard to like, deal with that when you've just had no sleep yeah i can imagine that's a pretty unpleasant experience and was their angle just that they were suspicious that you were doing something that seemed weird or what did their line of questioning seem like what was their concern i guess well i think they looked at my passport and well they'd asked how long i'd been overseas for when i was planning on going going home where i'd been and they like i think they were quite stuck on the idea that i was making money over here somehow and working um and they wanted to like see my bank statements um like the money i had which i couldn't pull up this this whole time i had no data as well so i was kind of just winging it with with the map and hoping i could get to get to burr <laughs> but um yeah so when they were asking my bank statements on my phone and all that i couldn't pull them up and I had, I don't know, less than $10 in cash, which I showed them. And they, they weren't stoked on that. Um, yeah, so they came in quite hard on me. Um, but I, what saved me there was I said my mum and dad would just send me money each week <laughs> to keep me going. Uh, and that assuaged their concerns a little bit, I guess. So, all right. So you- yeah yeah (laughs) slightly so they did eventually do how long did that whole ordeal take do you think the whole thing was about two hours and 15 minutes oh that's and that's got to feel like just absolutely forever yeah the moment of it when you're yeah kind of stressed out by the whole line of questioning you haven't slept you're exhausted yeah and they're they're going they're going in and out of like the wee cubicle thing i was in and yeah it was awful (laughs) yeah that sounds quite rough but anyway, you made it through, got off to Burke. Um, how'd the that back-to-back Burke and Sugarloaf para races go, and how was it getting between those? Um, well, yeah, that, I mean that pedal was fairly easy in some ways, but what was waiting for us in Burke was just a pedal fest. Like, I think the liaisons up to the stages were steeper than the actual descents. So there was like so much peddling. Um, and I think what this whole bikepacking thing has done is it's just taken away all my top end power. So I just, I can't pedal. Like I can't, I don't have any high intensity basically. <laughs> so yeah, that was a battle. Right. You've just been doing nonstop base miles, but you don't have the, the intervals and the sprint power to really crank those out. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like, I mean, I'm still when I'm when I'm pedaling mid stage. I'm still going as hard as I can, but it's 
it feels like I'm on, I'm stuck on about 60%. Like I'm just, my legs are burning, but I feel fine. Like my lungs aren't even working that hard. Like I could, I could have a conversation while I'm standing up on the pedals as hard as I can. It's just, it feels awful. <laughs> like it feels like I'm not putting in any effort at all. Yeah. I mean, that's an interesting note on how the whole bikepacking the EWS thing would impact your results too. I mean, it's easy to imagine you being tired and it's easy to imagine being just mentally fatigued and not as focused as you might be, but you wouldn't think of fitness as being the issue. But now that you're saying it, it kind of makes sense that the right sort of fitness might actually be. So um, that's an interesting thought. And so, okay, so you're, um, yeah, just not feeling 100% less out of tiredness, but more just out of not really being in quite the right sort of shape. But got through it. Uh, and then after Sugarloaf, you're back to Switzerland, right? So this was sort of where you'd imagined picking things back up before you ended up putting the North American trip together. Um, and what did you do for those last couple of races in Switzerland and France? Yeah. I mean, so yeah, for, for me, it was basically the start again. So in my head, I was meant to be feeling good and yeah, I was, I was hoping to do good that weekend. And I think I kind of put a lot on myself to do good, but, um, in between that, I guess I didn't stop biking and also, um, along, along with all this bike packing has come a lot of media stuff. So there's so much, oh, and also like sorting out stuff the next year, because this is the time of year that happens. So there's a lot of sponsorship stuff, lots, lots of media stuff and lots of planning and organizing and just admin. So, um, I don't think I've ever been as mentally fatigued as I was going into that EWS in Switzerland. Um, so yeah, just had a huge blowout <laughs> again. So what happened in the race? Um, I just had nothing to give. Like my mind was fuzzy, just making mistakes. Um, I didn't end up falling off that weekend though, which was for me, like, I don't know how that even happened because I was all over the place, but in the end, I didn't finish up like, oh, I think that's the worst I finished, but. I think the the failure that it, it felt it wasn't it wasn't super bad. And so then you only had a week between that and the finale in France. Uh, what did you do to kind of get yourself reset and better able to go, especially pedaling between them yet again? Or what? Yeah, I mean, so yeah, so Ludenville was the last like EWS on the circuit, so. Um, I guess I, that's kind of it. Like I was just the only option for me was just to empty the tank and give it all I had. And in some ways, like when I'm when I'm biking to these locations, that's my chill time. That's when I can kind of just let my mind go blank and give myself some time to chill out. So um, my mind was slightly better heading into Ludenville. Um, but then I just pedaled for, um, yeah, for four days, nonstop and a thousand kilometers. Um, so the fatigue was there, <laughs> but I was yeah quite excited to finish off the season. 
And so if I'm hearing you right, you were kind of going into that last race actually feeling mentally a little bit better than you had in Switzerland? Or do you think that was largely just born out of the excitement of it being the end and wanting to finish on a high note and also knowing that you could see the light at the end of the tunnel? Or is that a kind of fair read on it? Yeah, yeah, there's a bit of that. But like, also, like, I had four days of biking there. And I was like biking 20 hours at a time. So I think within that, um, my mind just wanders and it just, it kind of blanks out. So I think within those four days, there's quite a bit of doing nothing, just letting my mind do what it wants without having to think or plan anything. So I think that's kind of where um, I gain a bit of energy in my head. Yeah, I can see it. But as you just said, you were putting in some truly massive days between those two. How did that all go? Any particular stories that are memorable from that time? Or was it just sort of, as you said, you went a little blank because you were just in it and keeping the pedals turning kind of nonstop through that whole period? So that, yeah, that, that, um, that whole commute went quite to plan, I'd say. Although kind of on the first night, um, it hit minus two. So I basically decided I wouldn't sleep that night and I'll just pedal the whole night because I didn't have the, the camping gear, which was kind of suitable for those conditions. Uh, so yeah, that night I didn't stop and I still got cold just because of wind chill and all that, but I ended up cutting holes in my sleeping bag so I could slide my arms and and legs in it to keep me warm. And so you were riding wearing your sleeping bag with some holes cut through it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it kept me warm, but I was like, I was a hot, sweaty mess. But I think it was better than being cold. That, I'm having a hard time putting myself in that moment and thinking through what sounds like the best option there. But uh, it doesn't sound great. But you got through it all right? Yeah, it wasn't amazing, but like, I just didn't have the the kit suitable for sleeping in minus two conditions, like in the in the Alps. So I'm I'm quite confident, and still am that it was the best idea that I could have had. Yeah, I mean that probably sounds right. If you weren't really going to be able to sleep well anyway, just staying warm and getting some more miles under your belt probably is the way to do it. But uh, doesn't sound amazing. So I guess looking back at the whole season, I mean, are there things having now done it and looking back with a bit of perspective that you would do differently or did it feel like kind of just a good learning experience where you're glad to have done and learned what you did? Yeah, I think I'm quite, I'm quite happy with all the decisions I've made and there's I mean, like off the top of my head, there's nothing I would change. I think I did it quite well. Um, and of course, there's, there's always learnings along the way. And I guess lots of it's personal and lots of it's working how you function best and, and what you need. So, yeah, there's lots of those kind of learnings I've gained off it. But also on the, the culture side of things and learning how other places work and lots of kind of admin learnings as well. So. Yeah, I've, I've gained so much out of the, the whole expedition. I'm sure. And are there any things that stand out to you from just 
the more cultural side of it, having gone and toured a lot of Europe and a lot of North America, places that you hadn't been before, as we've already said. And what was it like going through and seeing all these new places in kind of a an unusual way, let's say? And I would imagine that's the case, too, that you obviously didn't have a lot of time to be a tourist through this. But what were your interactions with just the everyday people that you were coming across like and anything that you took away from that? Um, I mean, like, I think the, the thing I found hardest with that was language. Um, cause I think before coming here, I didn't know a single word that like wasn't English. <laughs> so that was hard, like communicating at first. And I, I slowly picked up on kind of all the, all the words you need to know. Um, so that, that was quite hard. Like when you go into a shop and, I don't know. You can't say yes or or you want you want that kind of thing. But yeah, it's something I picked up along the way. But I think the other thing I was like most mind blown about was how old buildings and things are over this side of the world. So I don't think many people know quite how young New Zealand is. Yeah, I I get that, and um, I mean I live on the west coast of the U.S. That's similarly just hasn't been settled by white people for all that terribly long. And so in the grand scheme of things, and uh, it's a, an entirely different scale over there. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It's, I'm, I just, I've just found it insane. <laughs> so looking back on the whole experience, are there any things that stand out to you as having been the specific hardest part of the whole trip and Anything that stands out as being your the best or your favorite part of the whole thing? Um, oh, the hardest part. Um, I don't know. Like, there's always like moments that are hard, but I kind of don't think much about those. I just do my best to get out of them, and I think the highs always outweigh those, and I've kind of just forgot about all the all the lows. So I think for me that that's good. Like there hasn't been many of those moments that are super tough. Um, I think most of the times I have been tough is just when I'm I'm tired and want to stop peeling. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, not 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 bad at all, I guess. <laughs> I think yeah, and I can imagine that's the sort of approach that would really help you get through something like that of just not getting bogged down in the the moments that feel hard and keeping in mind the bigger picture that this whole experience is amazing and you're going to do it. And that makes it all feel worth it. What about your favorite parts? Um, I think, I think all the people here in the, the mountain bike community, community as a whole, because I came over here by myself and now I'm leaving with a whole bunch of mates, a whole bunch of people I can talk to if I even need anything and just a whole bunch of connections. Um, and I, to me, that's just mind blowing how just, how nice and welcoming the whole community can be. Yeah, that's good to hear, but not surprising. It's one of the things that I think mountain biking does really well is that the community is excellent. And um, obviously just what you've done here is awfully impressive and pretty easy to get behind what you're up to because it's been really cool following along. Um, probably wrap this up pretty soon here and let you get back to it but i do want to ask what are you thinking you have in mind for next season if there's anything you can share about that yet or is that still far enough off that you're not 
really quite thinking that through too much just yet. Yeah, so that's kind of something I'm working on at the moment. Um, and I think, like, not fully on purpose, but this year I managed to find something that no one else has done to the extent I've done. And I don't think it's that often in the sport where someone kind of finds their own, own niche. So I think I'm going to see how far I can, I can take this and, yeah, build on it for next year and see see where it goes. So that's, that's what I'm chipping away at at the moment, and I'm hoping to find a bit of funding to kind of turn into a, a film kind of kind of thing and, yeah, share the, jo- sh- uh, share the journey. Well, that'll be very cool to follow along with, and I'm looking forward to seeing it. And this has been super fun. I appreciate you taking the time to chat and sharing your story. It's been a cool one, and... Uh, as you've sort of just alluded to there, you're only getting started with it. So very much looking forward to following along and appreciate you coming on again. It's been great. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks so much for the opportunity to, to chat with you. All right. That's it for this edition of bikes and big ideas. And I just want to say thank you to Matthew for the conversation. Thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing the episode. And thanks to you for listening from all of us at blister. Please take good care of yourself and everybody else. And we'll be back next week with a really good conversation with EXT founder Franco Fratton doing a very deep dive on suspension tech. Stay tuned for that one and talk soon.